hallmark of innovation culture and a tool that entrepreneurs and innovators use to uh, recoup on their investments if things go left. Because of gaps in our foreign investment regulatory schema and um, lack of vigilance through the courts on these kinds of nuanced deals that allow for foreign entities, foreign companies that have ties to governments to uh, make purchases of companies or get their hands on the intellectual property, they are pulling out some really sophisticated information, some really sensitive technology information. Episode 277 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. I uh, and uh, the usual disclaimer supply. The views we're expressing here don't express the opinions of the firm, its clients, our institutions, our family members, uh, or our pets. Uh, uh, today, I'm going to interview Camille Stewart, uh, who's here in the studio. In the uh, hi, Camille. Hi, Stuart. Camille is a cybersecurity policy fellow at New America and uh, has a bunch of credentials as long as your arm, but she has written a paper, Full Court Press, uh, dealing with uh, foreign adversaries using American bankruptcy courts to get national security technology, and we'll dig into that uh, after the news roundup, for which uh, we're going to be joined by Maury Shank, uh, who advises Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues, uh, um, Matthew Hyman, uh, who is a senior fellow at George Mason's National Security Institute, by Mika Yoyang, uh, who is the vice president for the National Security Program and chairperson of the Cyber Enforcement Initiative at Third Way, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, uh, host of today's program, and uh, since I haven't said this in a long time, holder of the record for returning to Stepto to practice law more times than any other lawyer, and I don't think anybody's going to touch that one. Maury, let's start with you. Uh, we are in the in the middle of a long cycle of demonization of facial recognition at the hands of civil society and uh, the press. It looks as though at least one judge in the UK is not going to get with the narrative. Yes. Yeah, so the uh, High Court in Wales um, has just, it's the uh, High Court of England and Wales, but the branch of it in Wales has just decided a case against the South Wales police, which has been the test bed for facial recognition in the UK. They've done a big test of something they call AFR, Automated Facial Recognition Identify, run it at a lot of locations. And that was challenged by a civil rights advocate who says he was at two of those locations. The police didn't challenge that and said they were not going to raise a, a standing challenge. And they asked the court to reach the merits. The court said that the facial recognition does affect privacy rights, but they basically said there was effective balancing. So they re rejected the challenges of Mr. Bridges under the European Convention on Human Rights and the UK Data Protection Act. And now this is not the end, right? This will go up to uh, uh, the uh, Supreme Court in uh, uh, the UK and, and probably on to the European Court of Human Rights? Uh, one would think it could. Well. Some of these are UK law claims. Um, these kind of claims can be pursued directly at the European Court of Human Rights. I imagine this case will be appealed. This is the first level at which it was brought. It can then go to the Court of Appeal and possibly to the Supreme Court. So we will see more of this. But a strikingly uh, sensible decision out of uh, uh, a UK court uh, uh, and consistent kind of with where American opinion is on this. Pew has a, a, a poll out on that. Uh, Matthew? Yeah. And the poll says that uh you know, most Americans that were surveyed said they're not troubled by police use of facial recognition tools, and they believe the police handles it responsibly, you know, which is different than the polling results when it comes to Americans' view of the major tech companies who they have a lot less trust in when it comes to handling data. Yeah, and uh, they they say they, they would trust technology companies uh, a great deal or somewhat with the facial recognition, about 36% of Americans versus 56 for law enforcement. Uh, those numbers are lower than President Trump's approval rating. Indeed they are. Yeah. And uh, I think it's... Uh, it's it, and it's symptomatic of what Americans have been experiencing, and certainly what they've been seeing from their leadership. Whether you consider yourself a D or an R, uh, both parties have certainly taken their shots at uh, the big tech giants, and it doesn't seem to be stopping. Yeah, 
interestingly, when they were asked, do you think the following are acceptable? They said law enforcement at 59% uh, versus 15 saying it wasn't, said law enforcement assessing security threats in public spaces, perfectly acceptable to use uh, uh, facial recognition. But advertisers trying to figure out whether people are actually reading and responding to their ads, 15% said that was acceptable, 54% uh, not. Uh, um, uh, I think uh, the companies that are helping to spur the concern about facial recognition are barking up the wrong tree. This is going to come around to, to regulate them rather than uh, law enforcement. Speaking of uh, companies that are trying to make trouble for uh, American law enforcement, uh, uh, there's been a flap, Mika, about whether uh, USCIS can collect facial, uh, can collect personal data and use, in some cases, social uh, uh, fake social media accounts to gather it uh, online. Uh, uh, there were two um, reports. One was a privacy impact assessment that said, yes, we're going to use um, fake accounts. Uh, and then a separate notice saying, we're going to make people tell us about their identities on a whole host of social media accounts. Um, thoughts? Yeah, so we've seen these as part of the immigration crackdown in the Trump administration. We've seen an increase in trying to be extra vigilant about screening people who are coming into this country. And this is an issue that law enforcement has generally, but specifically in this immigration context, Customs and Immigration has asked people to turn over their usernames for a variety of social media accounts that they may have so that they can be checked to see whether or not they're engaged in radical activity or all kinds of other things. I question whether or not the government really has the ability to go through all that data as someone who has over 30,000 tweets myself. Like the amount of manpower it takes to go through all of these people's accounts seems quite large unless they've gotten to some kind of automated scanning system, which would be a separate privacy issue on its own. Um, and then and the other thing is that they want to use uh, fake social media accounts to be able to review these accounts. And while one wonders where the digital plain view exception is for things that people post publicly. The creation of these fake accounts actually is a violation of the terms of service of various tech companies, that both Facebook and Twitter have been so concerned about the use of these fake accounts to amplify uh, harmful narratives inside the political discourse that they have said impersonating someone, or at least Facebook has, is not acceptable. Now, you can understand how a government employee might not want to use their own account to be able to do this, but you might want a fair amount of notice that there are certain kinds of accounts that are being used in this context for the government to be able to review certain kinds of materials that would be otherwise open to the public. So I think there's a lot more conversation that has to happen between Silicon Valley and the government about how they implement this policy. I don't think that we're there yet, and I think people are rightly concerned because of the ways that implementation might occur. So uh, the, the fake accounts, they, they say, are necessary for OPSEC, which makes some sense. They're only looking at public data, but you can tell who's looking at your account a lot of the time. Uh, you, get, you get notices, uh, and if you don't know this person, you might start to investigate and uh, question that. Uh, and if they're using their real name, they're going to find their family data and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, it's understandable that they want to use bland uh, names and switch off identities uh, when they do this. I would have thought that if you're engaged in criminal investigation, you ought to be able to get a court order that overrides the terms of service, right? It's, it, it, That's certainly true. And a number of the tech companies have required people to obtain a warrant, not just a court, not just a subpoena yeah. for this kind of data. I think that there is still an outstanding question, though. You know, we have the plain view exception in real life. If you were just walking by and saw something, what you know, that's Surely, acceptable. That's right. yeah, like, what is the digital equivalent of that? I don't think that we have a good answer on what that is right now in terms of how that would get implemented for law enforcement. Well, don't you think it's if, if you make it publicly available, anybody on Facebook can read it. Uh, right. That so sure sounds like you're acting in public. And it's only the, uh, the the question is, do you also have some right to know the names of the people who are walking by looking at your stuff? 
Well, there's that, but there's also, and I think this is a concern for people engaged in security, maybe not necessarily in customs and immigration, but certainly law enforcement. What happens in these private groups that are sort of semi-public forums where lots of people can join, but they're not necessarily available to anyone in the public? And so I think that we're still trying to work out some of these things. That'll be an interesting question. That that that, that we're, we're gonna we're gonna have civil liberties concerns running into social justice warrior uh, uh, determination to make sure nobody uh, with an R after their name appears on social media. Stuart, I think that this is not that sort of social engineering on the platforms. I find I'm fairly skeptical of these sort of arguments that somehow the social media companies are shutting down right wing speech, given the ways in which people have been radicalized on the right in this context. But um, I do think that there is a real privacy question for people about like, how much is the government allowed to look at? Right. I think there are people who are concerned because of the consequences that the government can impose. So I. I, I Putting, putting aside the question of uh, uh, shutting down right-wing speech, the, the, the problem here for the left is on the one hand, you want to be a civil libertarian and stand up for privacy and say the government can't do that. At the same time, you don't want these private and semi-private groups saying whatever they want. Uh, and that means at the end of the day, somebody's got to investigate them. Now, maybe uh, the, uh, so the social media companies are going to take responsibility for that, but I'm not sure they really want responsibility for that. No, it's very clear that they don't they feel like they're just a platform and that the speech is the responsibility of the individual users. I don't think that that position is likely to change unless Congress somehow revisits right liability for the platforms. But so much of the economic growth in this country and the ways in which we communicate now is premised on that. That would be a real radical change. I do think, though, when we're talking about harmful speech and the concerns that people have about these radicalizations um, on the right that have led to an uptick in, in hate crimes in this country. The question is really, how do you determine when someone is heading towards violence? And the consequences of violence in this country, given the availability of guns, are quite severe. Yeah. So uh, in the old days, uh, that used to be called pre-crime. Uh, but uh, uh, now now that it's a uh, favorite topic on the left, I'm sure it won't be called that anymore. What I'm interested in, uh, one thing I was struck by, they, they put out a list of all the social media they were going to uh, be monitoring. When was the last time anybody here used Vine for anything? I think it's dead. Uh, but they're monitoring Vine, and they are not looking at TikTok. I mean, how can that? How can that be? The kids today are on TikTok, right? So it's a <laughs> question today. of like, how how old of a person are you trying to capture here? Are you trying to capture monitor the communications of children and teenagers? There may not be a ton of people on Vine. It may be over inclusive. It may be that the people who put this list together are just not hip to what the kids do these days. It's, that would be easy to, to, <laughs> to guess. Yes. Um, but again, you look at all these sites that they're looking at, and it's very clear clear a couple of things. They're going to collect far more information than they're going to be able to functionally screen. And given the number of Chinese language sites that are on this, there is a particular national origin concern. This is not about terrorism in the Middle East, which is what traditionally has been the concern that we were worried about here, violent extremists coming into this country. But that the, the concern, at least, of people who are doing this collection has shifted and personally, I really doubt the government's linguistic capability to analyze this much material coming in in Chinese. Yeah, that's a, a quite uh, possibly true. Uh, it's uh, hard to imagine that they could do that. Uh, although I, maybe with Chinese characters, it's a little easier uh, to, to, to reduce the ambiguity of, uh, of speech, but I'm not sure that, it, that, that that's the case. No, no. I, I think that that's actually really unlikely given yeah. the complexity of the language. Yeah. No, it, it, it's going to be, uh, well, for sure, there's a massive counterespionage, uh, counterintelligence interest in what's happening uh, here, and there will be a lot of people who want to look at this, whether they can look at it in any detail is a real question. I, I agree with you. Speaking of uh, limitations on government's capabilities uh, that the government may not recognize, uh, the European Union is organizing a new commission uh, and uh, they are enthusiastically uh, rolling through a whole host of ideas for extracting yet more 
uh, pounds of flesh from Silicon Valley. Uh, Maury? Yeah, well, under the current structure of the EU, the commission turns over every five years, and Ursula van der Leyen on the 1st of November will replace Jean-Claude Juncker as the president of the commission. Uh, Van der Leyen has been the German defense minister until July when she resigned to take on this job. And, you know, there's a bit of a frenzy, as you say, of pitching ideas for regulation to her. Uh, Regulation is kind of what the European Commission is about. And she has, for example, in her acceptance speech, spoken favorably about fair taxation of internet companies, which means some kind of digital tax. She's very interested in regulation of AI, and there's other things being mooted, additional government intervention in the tech sector, and probable support for continued uh, big antitrust cases. Margretha Vestager, who's, uh, who's been the competition commissioner, is likely to be a senior deputy of Ursula van der Leyen, and also probable continued action on data protection enforcement, although that's with the member states rather than with the EU authorities. So lots coming down the pipe. Well, I, what I was interested by is that it came out, the story came out at the same time that Facebook put up a, a, a paper on uh, Data portability, uh, which you might think is God, you know, it's wake me when it's over. But actually, it's it's a fascinating um, and very pointed, uh, considering how uh, uh, how much Facebook's been forced to crawl for the regulators. Very pointed uh, uh, critique of the incoherence and hypocrisy of uh, the EU and uh, people who are cl- complaining about what. Uh, 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 Facebook has done because really at bottom, Cambridge Analytica was a scandal about letting people give their friends data to somebody. Uh, and that's uh, another word for that would be data portability. Matthew? Nope, that's exactly right. And Facebook's paper, you know, lays out some broad principles and it and it's couched in the uh, in terms of we need to start a conversation about this, but Facebook is very pointedly saying, look, data portability is something that everyone's entitled to, should have. We just need to set some rules of the road up. And you're right, because it is the flip side of the Cambridge Analytica situation. And so I think when regulators start thinking about, um, you know, we need to get control over data and where it's going, um, they are sort of pinned down by this issue of, well, then who's got the control? Who gets to make the decision? Is it me as the person that surrendered my data to Facebook? Is it you, the regulator? Is it the platform that's got the data? Uh, and I think regulators right now have a really hard time answering that question consistently and clearly. And it's not just the EU that comes in for exactly. this, the, this criticism. Should I, uh, the state of California uh, is next in line. Well, actually, Aaron Egan's paper at one point says that uh, sometimes in the very the, the very same institution that is taking one position on data portability takes another, and they cite. The, the Facebook decision yep. against them in the, in the FTC, and then Noah Phillips' uh, separate opinion in the Unroll Me case, where he makes the accurate observation that Google's restriction of third parties getting access to the data could be in Google's commercial and uh, uh, dominance interest. Uh, So uh, she's quite properly flagged some real incoherence at the heart of the attack on Facebook uh, uh, and sort of put it on an agenda that can't be completely ignored. Uh, That's right. And I think, you know, uh, another example of that incoherence is the security angle to all this, which is People say, well, everyone, you know, I as an individual should have the right to have my data moved around and I should be able to say yes if I want to port it somewhere else. And the flip side of that is the more copies you have of this data, um, the better the chances are that someone doesn't monitor it carefully and loses control of it. So if I've, you know, if there's the Matthew Hyman dossier at Facebook and then it goes to 12 other places because I want it there or I'm just not mindful of restricting it to one place, my chances of that data being breached and misused go up by 12 times. So we've had Commissioner Phillips on before. Now that he's been uh, uh, flagged as uh, uh, part of uh, the, uh, uh, the the incoherence of FTC decision-making, uh, we'll bring him back to explain his views uh, and to give us uh, um, some thoughts on, I, I, you know, it, it does seem to me that 
making data more portable in a lot of ways is crucial if you want to break up the dominance of really the two companies that do online advertising. Yeah, that's exactly right, Stuart. And it's not not entirely dissimilar from, you know, what we saw years and years ago with, you know, the copper lines going into our homes and making it available to cable operators and then being able to provide phone services. And so it it, it rhymes with what we've dealt with, what we dealt with 20 years ago. All right. Well, uh, Noah Phillips, you are uh, invited to be on the show uh, as soon as you want to. Uh, OK, uh, this is a fun story. Uh, already fraudsters are using uh, AI to mimic voices and to steal money. Yeah, we've um the Wall Street Journal has reported that the CEO of the UK subsidiary of an unnamed German energy company was convinced to send 200,000 pounds to fraudster by the voice of the CEO of the German parent, but it wasn't the real guy. It was an AI-generated voice. This um, AI technique, which is sort of generically called style transfer and has been made a lot more powerful by generative adversarial networks is really works pretty well. I mean, all of us have heard it. You know, you can say anything in the voice of Donald Trump or Barack Obama or whoever you want if it's been set up. Um, and fraudsters have not surprisingly put it to work. Yeah. So the UK CEO actually said something like, I recognized his slight German accent and the melody of his voice, which led me to wonder whether perhaps there was uh, uh, also an inappropriate relationship uh, co problem with this company. Uh, uh, but it is, yeah, the melody of the voice actually is exactly what uh, is hard to reproduce. And if they've got that, uh, this is going to be a major problem uh, uh, for a long time. They These guys went back to the well a second time and got caught or at least stopped because they asked for a second transfer when the first one went through. Uh, but otherwise, they would have they would have gotten away with it clean. Yeah, and this stuff is going to just keep getting better. So, you know, maybe they were clever enough to pick two guys who hadn't talked to each other that much. Um, I, we don't know what company it is, how long they've been working together, and maybe the accent and the melody is enough. But they're going to get very close on voice recognition later, and it's going to get tougher and tougher to tell things apart. Well, in the, in the spirit of people who uh, publicly announce uh, that they're, they're controversial but they are not suicidal, uh, I should say if I ever say something nice about Brussels, it ain't me. <laughs> We're all going to have to come up with rules like that. There's a, a New York Times story in the spirit of the NYT is on it. Uh, it's about 18 months too late, but uh, talking about Denmark having created a cyber ambassador, uh, uh, I'm, I'm having trouble taking this one seriously. Mika, uh, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I also had trouble taking this one seriously and sort of wondered, to whom does a cyber ambassador present his credentials? <laughs> is he issuing visas for engineers to go to Denmark? Look. The idea of an emissary or an envoy who is dealing with tech is something that makes a lot of sense. It is a particular portfolio. It crosses a lot of different countries, not just the United States. Um, so that makes sense to have someone who's specialized in it, given the, the technicalities here. But the idea that you are sending an ambassador as a supplicant to Silicon Valley, you know, it just sort of feeds this idea that these companies think of themselves as governments or as bigger than governments. Um, and I think that that is actually a message that is, is quite troubling, right, when we think well, about how they, big these they, companies they, are. Maybe they're sending him so that they can later withdraw him and, and initiate hostilities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you sort of wonder what that looks like from Denmark. But um, look, it is – it is useful for them to have someone who is really focusing on this conversation. Again, interesting that they sent this person to Silicon Valley and not to Washington and not to Brussels. Well, and not to Shenzhen. Or wherever. You know, there are places where the business of government and the decisions about regulation are made. And then there are places where the business is done and they have not sent him to the place where the rules are made. They've sent him to where the business is done. Yeah. Phony story of the week. Uh, okay, let's see if we can do five stories in five minutes. Uh, Maury, Finn Fisher. Well, this uh, UK German company that makes the FinSpy software, their German affiliate is under investigation by the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office for illegal exports to Turkey of the software to um, monitor the opposition, um, Erdogan's opposition. 
and the German um, left wing is not surprisingly happy about this investigation. Okay, Mika, I, uh, we talked about uh, uh, whether there's a conspiracy against the right on uh, uh, online. Uh, here's more evidence. Uh, the best way to, to get your uh, account killed by Twitter apparently is to have the president retweet you. So I think that this is a little bit of a misleading, right? Is this silencing the right argument or not? It's very clear the president does, in fact, retweet a lot of bots that are designed to get his attention and to push him in a particular direction. And it is also very true that once the president retweets someone, they get a lot more attention than they would if they were just off by themselves tweeting. So you get, right, in a case of places where users will are responsible for reporting potential bots, you tweet this thing, a bunch of people look at you, you're going to get a bunch of reports. Um, and some of these accounts are actually bots. So, you know, as a percentage of things that are going to happen, bots get that get retweeted by the president are more likely to get shut down. How many of these were bots? Do we know? Um, I don't know that we know exactly how many of them were bots, but, you know, the numbers are fairly small here. Yeah, and it's, like, some, it's like 16 or 17. Yeah, and, and look, and there are real people who are getting caught up in this who um, behave like... Don't you think there's probably somebody who makes it his business to, to find every retweeted, retweeted account and complain about it to the uh, the safety com council at uh, uh, Twitter. There's, there's got to be uh, uh, people who think that's a, a useful use of their time. I mean, there may be, but then there are also a lot of people who the president reads and retweets who are engaging in really terrible speech or suggesting things that are violent. And those things are, in fact, violations of terms of service. Now, look, we can all have a bad day and threaten violence against somebody and say, I'm going to do something. Um, that doesn't mean we're going to do it. But in this world, given the president's platform, that kind of speech retweeted gives people a greater sense of permissiveness about actually doing it. And we have seen hate crimes going up. So right, to the extent that social media is concerned about the effect that amplification of this negative speech has on society as a whole, they are taking action. Clear evidence, I think, that uh, if uh, President uh, uh, Trump weren't president, his Twitter account would have been axed by Twitter years ago. Uh, they, 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 they don't like these views. They would find reasons like the reasons you gave to uh, to kill him off. Not only that, I think if the president weren't the president, he would be so desperate for attention that he would be making <laughs> increasingly extreme statements on his own to the point where he would violate their terms of service. And it, I think, is only the fact that he's got some staff in the White House who say, eh, Mr. President, are you sure that's not a good idea? Let's try and keep you know on the line. As far out as that line is for many people, uh, you know, I think he would be... Much worse were he just a private citizen. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna touch that. Uh, dog bites man. China hacked Asian telcos to find Uyghur. Called data records. Uh, surprise, uh, any surprise, surprise, yeah, exactly. surprise. Yeah, so they've been hacking um, telcos in Southeast Asia and in Central Asia because the Uyghurs are, you know, transit through these uh, countries and China believes there is useful intelligence to be had by monitoring these telcos, and so that's what they're doing. Their treatment of the Uyghurs is, uh, you know, indefensible. Mm -hmm. But it's worth noting there were apparently 5,000 Uyghurs yes. uh, fighting with I for ISIS, uh, yeah. and, and they're coming home, uh, or they're going to, uh, you know, or they're going to be killed someplace. But uh, um, if we had 5,000 Americans fighting for ISIS, mm -hmm. we'd be hacking every one of those telcos looking for the Americans. Yeah. I mean, that's the piece of the story that I thought was most eye-opening is, is that number, 5,000. Now, I'd, I'd like to do a little more diligence to figure out where that number comes from. It sounds like a number that maybe... Maybe someone in the Chinese uh, security apparatus might have appended to the Uyghurs <laughs> yes, to therefore justify careful monitoring of their comings and goings. But you're right, Stuart. If that number is legit and, you know, the shoe on the other foot, I'm sure um, the U.S. intelligence agencies would be very active at looking at ways to figure out what those people are saying and where. And um, both Facebook and Google are going to get significant state, consolidated state uh, antitrust probes, uh, something like 40 states going to be looking at Google and, and, and more like 10 looking at Facebook. They are both um, bipartisan and, and, and truly bipartisan. It's not just one token uh, D or R, uh, which is 
truly bad news for uh, both Facebook and Google. It means they have now united America in uh, disliking them and looking for ways to, to uh, cut them down to size. And Mika, uh, take us out. Uh, uh, the FBI is looking at a $4.2 million cyber theft in Oklahoma. It looks like they got some, but maybe not all the money back. Yeah, they got about 400000 back, and they say that they're confident that they will get recovery because how, of how early this crime was reported. However, look, this is a fairly major cyber theft. We're talking about a theft out of a pension fund. An employee's email was hacked and the funds were diverted. It makes you wonder about the fiscal controls on these kinds of yes, funds. Right. But it also shows you that hackers are getting increasingly sophisticated and that they are targeting pension funds and going for amounts this large should be of quite a very big concern to everyone because this kind of theft potentially could be problematic. You re recall the theft from the Bank of Bangladesh. We're, we're talking about big money that we're seeing people move around. And I think that there's yeah, some Yeah, you shouldn't be able to do it just by compromising an email account. And Correct. They, maybe you can get in and uh, move laterally and escalate privileges, and maybe that's what they did, but they're not saying. But they're not saying exactly what. Now, uh, this is a major crime. It does show you the importance of the FBI really stepping up its game. It's not just, right, this is a big crime and it's eye-opening, but this kind of attack out of people's pension accounts, out of their oh, investment yeah. accounts, is happening every day at much smaller amounts. And as we've discovered a third way and looking at the arrest rates on this, only three in a thousand reported crimes ever see an arrest. So thieves are operating with near impunity when they commit this kind of crime. So here's my advice usually is buy a Chrome machine and use the Chrome machine exclusively to check your uh, financial accounts and never check them from anywhere else. Uh, uh, you still have to worry about whether your router has been compromised. <laughs> this but... podcast brought to you by. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Now, Chromebooks are, are nice because they they. they there's nothing left when you turn them off, basically. So right. I mean, the challenge is in this is that the, you've essentially hacked the individual who had the ability to do yeah. that, and no, so that's right. That's, that's, that's not going to save you. Right. I, that's right. I, I, this right. is system independent. This is human to human. And again, look, if you're not going to go after the human who did this, there's nothing that you can do to protect yourself on the system side. Yeah, uh, and plus, everybody should be using two-factor authentication, uh, uh, including. You know, Twitter's CEO. Okay, that is the news roundup, and we're going to turn right now to Camille, who's right here. Uh, Camille Stewart, uh, your paper, uh, I, I, I'm going to go through your background later, but I, uh, you're kind of all everything. You were at Cyvalence for five years, you were at DHS for how many years? Two. Two. Doing cybersecurity policy, mm -hmm. uh, which is nice. You know, it's always nice to have a DHSer uh, in the a podcast. <laughs> Your paper. Well, why don't you tell me what's the what's the thirty second version of the paper? Yeah, so the paper walks through foreign adversaries leveraging the bankruptcy courts to exfiltrate national security related technology. Bankruptcy is a hallmark of innovation culture and a tool that entrepreneurs and innovators use to uh, recoup on their investments if things go left and. Because of gaps in our foreign investment regulatory schema and um, lack of vigilance through the courts on these kinds of nuanced deals that allow for foreign entities, foreign companies that have ties to governments to uh, make purchases of companies or get their hands on the intellectual property, they are pulling out some really sophisticated information, some really sensitive technology information. And you talk about some specific cases, what I want to get into, and then have some policy proposals. But I, how big a problem is this? Can you give us some examples of things that, that where you think clearly the law and bankruptcy court proceedings didn't serve the national interest? Yeah. So some of those cases you're talking about are really illustrative. Unfortunately, we can't quantify this problem right now because, you know, it's kind of hard to see where there was some kind of oversight. Things are, you know, far down the pipeline. But I'm hoping that through some of the pilot regulations to come around FIRMA that we'll be able to get some additional insight. But I think that uh, Molly Corp is a really great example. So Molly Corp is with the last rare earth mine in the United States and rare earth minerals um, are included in defense technology 
technology and cell phones and a number of different technology and military-related products. The sole mining rights were um, given to a Chinese company, Shanghai Resources, during a bankruptcy in 2017. In 2015, they'd also tried to go bankrupt, and DOD had stepped in to, you know, kind of reverse course. But in 2017, the bankruptcy went through, and we lost the rights to the last rare earth mineral mine so, in the United so States. So let me push on this one, because usually my view about, you know, if the Chinese want to buy oil in the ground in the United States, my first reaction was, let them, because if there's ever a national security crisis, we'll just take it back. Rare earth's different. It's actually not, the, the earth is not rare at all. Right. right. What's what's tricky about rare earths is the processing uh, equipment and technology, and it's very capital intensive. So if you just decide I'm closing that and moving the uh, uh, equipment someplace else, you're not going to restart that just by having the president, you know, hereby order that it start up again. Exactly. The investment to get that back up and running is significant. So actually right now the Pentagon is requesting funds to try to mitigate the effects on this because with the trade talks that are happening between the U.S. and China, there is a real threat that China could close off our access to these rare earth so, minerals. You know, it's not just DOD that cares about this. No. Everybody in Silicon Valley ought to be caring yes. about this. So uh, you would think that that would make rare earth mine opportunities outside China look pretty good to a lot of people. Yes, but the volume. China earns a significant portion of yeah. rare earth mineral mining. And so although we get some of ours from other places, the predominance of what we use is coming from China. Okay. Any other examples? Another good one is Avatar Integrated Systems. There was um, a company called Atop Tech. And this is kind of the best illustrative example of kind of how an innovator conceives of a great idea. They created this chip that went into cell phones, got the operations up and running. But before it could reach its full potential, they went bankrupt. And this is the kind of capability that would be ripe to be dual use, right? So something that is used in everyday technology, but also used used in critical infrastructure mm -hmm. or the defense industrial base. One of their creditors and a competitor, Synopsys, waved a red flag and said, this looks suspicious. This should go for CFIUS review. And Avatar was actually able to get them to stop making comment in the proceedings. Shut them down. Shut them down, uh, saying that they weren't party to this to the, to the proceedings and should not, therefore, be able to intervene. And they were able to move forward, acquire the technology, acquire the company without intervention and with, without CFIUS review. Huh. And now, if you're Avatar, you can say, well, fine, I, I still have the right to petition my government. I, I can't believe they wouldn't call up CFIUS or call up the Treasury Department and say, yo, this is a problem. Uh, and CFIUS, if it chose to, could have been in, intervened, couldn't it? Yes. Even before the changes to firma, CFIUS could have intervened. So it is surprising that nothing was done there. I believe even some members of Congress kind of said, what's what's happening here? Uh, but it moved forward. And that's kind of the problem it's with so some weird, of this. so weird because this is 2017, right? So Correct. This is, this is we're, we're deep into the... Uh, post-election uh, um, hawk dominance uh, of uh, Sipius. Yes, huh. which is why this is a, a really surprising case, but very illustrative of that kind of once it's in bankruptcy, that, that train doesn't move as quickly to impede a bankruptcy proceeding, which is something that we want to we want to stop. Right. So let's 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 turn to the this other cases yes. uh, uh, going back to Global Crossing uh, and uh, uh, maybe even uh, uh, earlier. Uh, but uh, what would you change about the bankruptcy system to address the national security implications of it? Yeah. So one of the great things about FIRMA when released was it called out bankruptcy and other debt proceedings is something that, that Treasury was supposed to address in the regulations to follow. In the pilot regulations that came out, unfortunately, though, it was not specifically called out. But what was called out were 27 NAICS codes. NAICS mm -hmm. um, codes, right? Yes. This is the, uh, North American Indus Industry Classification System codes. Right. And these kind of um, align to different industries. And these 27 were identified as sensitive and had the propensity to have national security implications. So those 27 codes often appear on bankruptcy filings. Okay. NAICS codes are often included in the filing, which means that you can quickly uh, search all the bankruptcy filings to see which ones might touch on these technologies. Exactly. And an easy flag for a judge. You get a proceeding in front of you. Your clerk sees one of these NAICS codes. 
maybe we should do some of this review in camera, so behind closed doors, implement some protective orders so that this information isn't so widely available, whether in open court or through the, the, the information in the so, docket. So I, 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 here's my problem with this. Mm -hmm. it, it feels as though you're asking a bankruptcy judge in you know, uh, Missouri to scan every single one of his cases for these NAICS codes on the less than 1% chance that there's going to be a national security issue. Wouldn't it be better if the Treasury just did it? Unfortunately, there is no enforcement mechanism right now on the part of the Treasury or DOD for that matter to either look back and see if there have been any issues through bankruptcy or uh, to proactively do so. So right now, the judicial system is our best bet to flag Sad. these things early. Right. So one of the things I also propose is that we create a machine learning capability that will help flag these things for them, right? Especially right. as commerce takes a look at being more forward-looking around emerging technologies and, and foundational technologies, something that's not well-defined currently. And quite frankly, even the NAICS codes that we've discussed are, you know, voluntary alignments and quite outdated. Um, so they won't catch things that are emerging and, and likely dual use. So that capability is something that in the future would help flag these things for judges. So you would, at one point you suggested maybe every one of these bankruptcy proceedings ought to go to CFIUS in a short form. That's a lot. So not every bankruptcy okay. proceeding, right? But ones that, looks, that look and feel like there could be national security implications. So one of those those triggers could be the, the next codes, right. but there could be others, right? Okay. So you're, you're suggesting that there, there needs to be some mechanism for sensitizing the judges. Boy, that's hard. I mean, every one of these judges, they're judges. They, they you know, they're... <laughs> You know, nobody tells them what to do. Right. And they've got this a culture of I'm here because I have all the power over everybody who has a relationship to this company. And I'm going to resolve this company's problems as fast as possible because otherwise it'll be dead. I and it, my word is law. So that's the culture to, to say, hey, maybe instead you should wait for somebody else to tell you what to do. I, I, that's just not what they're going to want to do. So I, I don't want to position it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I want to leverage that all-encompassing power for you to make an ask for a CFIUS review, proof of a CFIUS review, okay. right? You can leverage that all-encompassing power to put a protective order in place, to do an in-camera review, to protect your nation. I want to equip judges to be a part of the solution. Um, I don't think right now that there is any comprehensive, cohesive uh, effort to help them understand the national security implications of things that could be on their docket. Quite frankly, quite a few of them, unless they're kind of in Silicon Valley or New York or D.C. where they see a lot of technology cases, they're not likely to think through the national security implications of the technology at issue. So I want to equip them to understand that enough to say, you know what, it might be a, this might be a good place for me to ask for that information. Okay, so that's that's basically training and schmoozing to get the judges to pay more attention to this. Yes. Would you change the law beyond what firm has already done? So I would codify how bankruptcy and debt court proceedings should be handled in the regulations that are coming out through CFIUS. Okay, so you think CFIUS actually could say, could just tell bankruptcy judges, uh, you're doing a transaction, it affects U.S. business, we have implicit authority over it, and these are the places and the ways in which we want to exercise that authority. Well, we want them to further empower judges yeah. to leverage <laughs> oh, their so authority. Okay. By being clear about how they do that. And that's why I think the short form declaration is a good idea. It puts bounds on the filing. They know 45 days later, approximately, they'll get a response and they can, you know, pick the case back up. Okay. This is going to be hard. Uh, you have not picked an easy task. But I, I think, yeah, if you, if, if you can sell that to Cipheus, I'm not sure the bankruptcy judges are going to fight it. Yeah. So as long as it doesn't look like it's going to get in the way of every case, they'll, they'll probably uh, grumble but not rebel. We've actually talked to Treasury and they are open to adding this information. From their perspective, at first they felt like judges have always been empowered to do this. We thought they knew. Mm -hmm. And so clearly articulating this is something that they're definitely open to. So that's a good sign. Um, and as far as judges, we've talked to the FJC and we're working with George Mason to potentially bring some training. So we're, we're working on avenues to actually make this happen. Okay. Uh, all right. DHS, how was that? 
it was a good experience. Were you were you in what is now CISA? Or were you no, in the policy office? I was in the policy office. Oh, in your right. old office. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> Another policy uh, uh, um. alumnus makes good uh, <laughs> alumna. Anyway, uh, so how did you get in? I, I, I should say for the audience, uh, uh, you're a relatively young black woman, uh, a, and uh, uh, that's rare in cybersecurity. Uh, how did you get into it? So I always knew I wanted to be an attorney. Right. So, but I also let me guess. Yeah, I, your parents and the people around you uh, kept saying, "What are you going to be a lawyer when you grow up?" <laughs> Definitely, because I used to make my parents sign contracts every time they <laughs> made me a promise. Yeah, this is how I ended up in the law too. <laughs> but on top of that, my dad's a computer scientist, so I also had technical acumen and exposure very early yep. on, which doesn't happen for very many people. Well, especially um, not people who go to law school who usually go to law school so they don't have to do any math ever again. Exactly. So I actually had a, a large debate with myself and my dad about whether or not I should get a computer science degree before going and where, to what law did, school. What did he say? He, he said to... get the computer science degree. Oh, I did I, not. Yeah, I rebelled. Okay. But I regret that now just a little. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I constantly cite this guy from Brown who uh, graduated recently who said to me, uh, you know, in this field, you're either self-taught or you aren't any good. Exactly. Exactly. And I have found that to be true and increasingly true. And so when I went to law school and when I graduated from law school, I was really um, intent on finding an opportunity that blended my legal skills and my interest in technology and cybersecurity. And so I actually went straight to a cybersecurity company after law school. That was a Cybalance one there. They're, they, they've done very well. They have. And it was a great opportunity because you know how a startup works. You wear a number of different hats. Yeah, yeah. So not only was I doing their legal work, but I was co-managing our security operations center. And this was the early days of... Uh, uh, filtering social media and cyber threat intelligence. So kind of filling out, figuring out how to work within the terms of service for these companies, as well as what are the lines and the limits on what we can ask for demand and how we can protect our clients. So you didn't have a problem that. with bro culture or something getting getting in there? Or did you just did you, you just manage to uh, live it down? <laughs> bro culture is definitely a real thing. I think because I have worked in spaces around technologists my entire career, You're immunized. I, have, <laughs> I have been able to navigate that. That is not to say that there weren't hurdles, right? I uh, definitely found many of the the things that that we hear about traditionally, both being a woman and a woman of color, um, at that intersection, there are definitely some limitations, even just things like access and opportunity and understanding what what a path forward looks like. I have no lawyers in my family, so oh, understanding- wow. so you did, had no idea what lawyers do, and now you're in a place where nobody else does either. Exactly, because <laughs> the nice thing about surveillance was they realized they needed lawyers, but didn't realize what those lawyers should be doing. So actually, it was a fun <laughs> endeavor to figure out- <laughs> Exactly what my portfolio would include. But yeah, so, so so even things like that, and especially in the national security space where who you know and access to people is a big part of how you grow yeah. in the field, that has been a really big hurdle for me to overcome. And, and as I overcome it, I try to make room for others to do the same through organizations like Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, started by Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins and Diversity and National Security Network and some other initiatives, because this space is changing and leveraging the diverse experiences of, of everyone reflected in this nation is really important for us to, you know, stay up to date, fight the newest threat and be innovative in how we do so. So I'm going to ask you kind of final question, what people who want to follow in your footsteps should do, but... First, I'm going to ask you a harder question, mm -hmm. which is uh, in, in building this career, what's the thing you did that you kind of now regret? Oh, that's a great that's question. I'm going to come back to the regret question. Okay. What should people do? She's, she's, I, I'm sure, right now she's thinking, coming on this damn podcast. I know. <laughs> Can that be an answer? So people who are interested in this space, I would say don't be limited or defined by the traditional rules of entry and traditional um, paths to move forward. Uh, the one thing that I've been able to do that I think has, one, been the most fun and 
obviously and honestly created the most opportunity was kind of blazing my own trail and pulling things together that weren't traditionally um, tied together, right? Most attorneys working in the space work on privacy or work on uh, breach response. And while those things are extremely important, and I do a lot of privacy work as well, breach response wasn't wasn't what I wanted to do. That wasn't my area of interest. I kind of wanted to look at the larger landscape and understand how these things fit together and really have my hands in the technical side. So I encourage you to kind of piece together um, a, a career and a career path that is well-suited for you. And that can be both at work and in the things that you do outside of work. Never feel limited by your day job. I feel like You'll never get everything from one place, so find ways to get the other things. And the thing that I probably regret most... You can, you can also say, what's the thing you just wish you had done in, uh, that you didn't do? The thing I wish I had done that I didn't do earlier mm -hmm. is network. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm an introvert by nature. I largely get out of that. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that uh, you're so <laughs> very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> But they always tell you in undergrad and probably mostly in law school to, you know, leverage the connections you make when you go to those events and you meet people, you know, follow up. And I think I started doing that too late because um, to my earlier point about who you know and your network and access to information and people being a really, really a hallmark of, of how you progress and how you expand um, your reach and your understanding of issues in the in the space and the sector. Um, that would probably be something I would have started earlier. So yeah, I, 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 when people ask me what they should do for the summer, like their first summer after law school, uh, I almost always say almost seriously, go sell something door to door. I mean, that's kind of true. Yeah. Get a, a sales job in the space you want to play in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, Camille Stewart, uh, uh, that was terrific. Uh, I, I, I haven't covered all the things that you've done in your uh, uh, career. Maybe I should. You're a cybersecurity policy fellow at New America. You're a security fellow at the Truman National Security Project. Uh, uh, and uh, you're... Bio online includes uh, your work at uh, DHS in the Obama administration. And if I'm looking at this, Black American National Security and Foreign Policy Next Generation Leader, mm -hmm. National Urban League Cyber Connoisseur <laughs> honoree, uh, and the 2016 Women in Technology Rising Star Awardee. Well, congrats. Uh, it was much. a terrific discussion. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, you in the gentlest possible way making bankruptcy judges just a little uncomfortable in the future. So thanks to Camille Stewart. Uh, thanks to Maury Shank and uh, Matthew Hyman and Mika Yoyang for joining Joining me today, this has been episode 277 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Be sure to send us more guest suggestions. Um, uh, Camille was a, a guest suggestion, uh, and whoever suggested you was going to get one of these uh, Cyber Law Podcast mugs, which Camille is also getting now. Uh, highly coveted. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, occasionally when I have the time, I tweet out the stories that I think we probably will cover this week. Uh, uh, and please uh, go to uh, iTunes. Uh, or Google Play or Stitcher or whatever and leave us uh, a review. Uh, we haven't had a review in a month, so we could use a couple of reviews. Uh, uh, thanks to Doug Pickett, who's our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, who's our editor. I'm Stuart Baker, host and chief provocateur. Please join us again uh, next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and recovery.